Welcome this morning to Exodus. If this is your first time here, welcome. If this is your dozenth time here, welcome. Um, if you are new here, relatively new, and you haven't, you want to get on uh, kind of a communication loop with Exodus, we have a on the purple sheet, which are over there on the side table, there's a little place you can write your name, address, email address. We'll send you one email. We won't put you on some permanent list unless you ask to be. And there's usually a weekly list that comes out with announcements and things like that. So you just need to fill it out, tear it off, and drop it in either the purple buckets when they're passed by, or the green buckets, I guess, or in one of the uh, offering uh, green lanterns there. All right? A um, couple announcements to highlight. Uh, have that slide, Stephanie. Um, on the purple sheet, there's a number of opportunities with uh, ways to get involved. There's a Exploring Prophetic Gifts. It's a small group. It's going to be like for three or four weeks, I think. Um, 6 p.m. There's more information here. It's just an interesting study trying to figure out how God speaks. Orchard Work Day. Uh, that's Sarah Street, Women's Retreat. And that's going to be at... Uh, uh, the Arnold's house. It's all, all information is in here, though. If you want to find information on how to connect with people, um, connect with one another, that's in there. Also, I think we had to, we want to put up our little results from the NCAA. John Kinsick actually won the March Madness. He picked Louisville, so obviously not a Hoosier fan, so we will, uh, actually, he was second place last year, so. Anyway, so that's just uh, Scott, John Kinsick, Scott Stonier. Dan's daughter, Senna, tied for second, but since she's related to one of the people who put it together, she doesn't qualify for a prize. <laughs> and then uh, Brian, and, uh, they're, they're, actually, there are no prizes. There are no prizes. Okay. Um, anyway, uh, Brian Arnold and Jake Titus. So next year, I don't know if anybody will pick Indiana to win it, but maybe so. Who knows? All right. Hey, what do we do, too, also every week is we have a time where we get, to, uh, get you in groups to talk, and we do something called Your Story Matters. It's a question we ask so you can uh, answer with one another. It's not a real intimidating question. And so April Harper, where's April? April has our question this morning. April Harper is uh, our part-time kids ministry director. Her full-time job is a middle school English teacher. Right. All right. So go ahead, April. All right. Good morning, everyone. Um, as you know, it's starting to get a little bit warmer outside. And I don't know about you, but when it, that happens, I roll my windows down. And oftentimes I like to sing loudly and out, out the car. And I'm wondering for your question this week, um, when that happens to you, what song is it that you sing? <laughs> A couple come to mind for sure for me. Now on the radio, of course, Gautier will make me scream um, out the car window. But also um, my old faithful is Carol King. Anybody know who that is? Okay, she's been my favorite since I was like eight years old, and I will still sing to her anytime I can. <laughs> so get in your groups and ask the question, um, what song do you like to sing loudly in the car? So groups of like four or so, introduce yourselves, and what's the song you like to sing? Whether it's in the car, in the shower, whatever. Thank you. Can we just stay now? Yeah, I don't think, I think Dan forgot to put, make the slide up there.
You teach eighth grade mostly? Okay. All right, go ahead and turn back this way if you would. You have a mic, good, okay. Okay, um, April, uh, April, I had April stay up here. Like I said earlier, April is, uh, for the last probably six weeks or so, she just started. She's in uh, charge of providing leadership for the Exodus Kids Ministry. I told you her full-time job is as a eighth-grade English teacher at El Edgewood Middle School. How many people can remember their eighth grade English teacher? Anybody? Okay. Um, so uh, you'll notice there's a, a blue, a blue uh, card on your chair. But before we get to the card, I just wanted you to get a chance to get to know a little about April. So a couple questions, April. Uh, first of all, what brought you to Bloomington and what keeps you here? Um, I was born and raised in Ellettsville, just down the road. So I, um, I stayed around for college at IU met my husband here, and now he works for the university as an attorney. And I where, where is Steve? Yeah. He, Steve's up here playing the bass guitar. So, tall guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we're here pretty much, uh, as far as we can tell, we're here for a very long time. Okay, and this is your first year at Edgewood or second year? My first year at Edgewood. Before that, I taught at an inner city school in Indianapolis and um, worked um, teaching English as well, but it's a very different environment. Okay. Um, one of the questions I like to ask people in, in general is what's, what's on the front end of your spiritual learning curve? What's, what's Jesus having? What's he stretching you? What's, where's your growth point right now? Yeah, right now, um, I think God is teaching me a lot about faith and how, to, how it takes some movement from me sometimes in order for him to move. And Excuse me. And um, I'm actually in Kathy's Bible study that just started, Wonderstruck. And this week we had like some homework, or you would call it, um, like a study. And um, it made me reflect on a lot of times when I have had to make the first move and then God has come come through on those things. And right now I'm kind of think I'm just really exploring this idea of um, a, another ministry to be a part of, um, not another church, but just a different kind of ministry to um, help some people in the community. And it's, it's really prompted me in thinking, what should I do first um, to get that going before um, and give God the room to move. Okay, good, good, good. All right. Now, uh, Kids ministry, the blue cards. Everybody grab your blue card on your chair. Everybody's got one. Everybody should have a pen, hopefully, that works. If it doesn't work, borrow one. So why don't you, uh, we, we're, uh, with the kids downstairs, um, we don't just want, we, we're not just looking for people to maintain the kids for ministry. We're looking for people who want to be involved in helping kids grow to become alive, awake, and free followers of Jesus. So it's not just slots we're looking to fill. We want people who have that kind of passion and influence. So why don't you tell us about the card? We want everybody to fill a card out. That doesn't mean we're going to, you don't have to check the box that says you're uh, helping out, but we just want everybody to fill one out. So go ahead and explain. Just go through the card there. Yeah, so on the front um, where it says name, email, and phone, if everyone can fill out that side... And it's just asking if you'd be willing to serve 
um, once every four to six weeks. And currently the schedule that we have for kids ministry is that you serve every four. And I would like to move it to be a little bit stretched out from that so um, that it would be really only about once every month and a half. So after that, it's just an age that you prefer. And, and then the last question there is asking if you don't want to be put on the schedule as far as necessarily teaching every four weeks or six weeks, then would you be willing to be one of my backup people? And what this would mean is I would, I would put you on the date um, on the schedule, and if somebody didn't show up on that date, that I could call on you to help out in a room where we didn't have anyone. And so all that would require is you just committing to coming to church on that week whenever um, you were on as a backup. And if you have anything, you know, to add to that, you could list that on comments. But it's essentially just to um, just something to be praying about and thinking about on how can you um, serve the children of Exodus and how can you help um, in their spiritual growth. All right. Now, again, too, if, if you're visiting this morning, don't, we're not going to grab you and have you work with kids for anything. So don't worry about. But this is mainly for those of you who are regular, consider Exodus your church home. Um, and if you're willing to uh, check one of those things, if, just because you check one doesn't mean you're locked in for the rest of your natural lifetime and helping, mm-hmm. but it means you're enough interested that April's going to contact you and see where we go from there, correct? Yeah. And then on the back side, this is just for us to, it, um, it's always good for us to know uh, in terms of those of your students, college students, if you just fill out the back side if you're a college student, it just helps us kind of know, keep in contact. So if April wants to get in contact with people over the summer. Mm-hmm. So anything else Wait. you want to add or... Um, no, I think that's all. I'm just, if you do fill this out and when you turn it in, um, I'm just going to probably be emailing you and asking you, um, like how serious you are about it and seeing, um, where the need could fill. And maybe it's not even on this next schedule, but maybe in the future. Um, but right now really just looking to have, um, a great program during the summer and with a lot of students leaving, that is where there are some gaps sometimes. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, and once you fill them out, just pass them to the center, and there's people at the center, pass them back, and then we'll figure out how to collect them from there. So um, one of the things, too, thanks, thanks, April. Thank you. One of the things, too, just as you're finished filling those out, um, we know for people who work down with the kids, we know sometimes it becomes a, it's a burden because you'd rather. Sometimes people want to be up here as opposed to downstairs. We're just asking that people consider how God may ask you to be involved down there because the Holy Spirit is just as active down there as he is up here. Maybe more so sometimes. We don't know. So we just want to encourage you to that. Go, go ahead and pass them toward the middle. And then uh, we'll collect those as they get passed back. So, hey, why don't you uh, uh, pray with me? And we're going to take short, some short minutes to look at God's word this morning. God, we, uh, we believe your Holy Spirit's real. We believe he's present and active in the floor beneath us right now with babies, toddlers, and elementary kids. We believe your Holy Spirit is present and active in and around all of us here this morning. And we believe he's present and active not just this time and place, but all the time. But as we look into your word uh, today, God, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see uh, what your spirit wants us to see. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, question of the morning. Uh, what would your life be like if you were 100% full of the life and power of God? I'm going to break this down for you in a second. But 
before, you know, the last number of weeks I've asked questions like, what would your life be like if you didn't, if you didn't have to struggle with X or struggle with Y? Now I'm saying, if you were 100% the person God intended you to be, if you were full of God and, and 100% kind of way, what would your life be like? Now, let's, what would your relationships be like? Well, if you were full of the life and power of God... Fear would not be a part of the equation. You wouldn't be afraid of other people's opinions of you. Timidity or lack of confidence wouldn't be issues because you were, if you were full of the life and power that comes from God, that wouldn't be an issue for you. Forgiveness wouldn't be a difficult thing for you. Yeah, you'd still get hurt. You'd still get wounded. You'd still be disappointed. Forgiveness wouldn't be an issue. Fear wouldn't be an issue. Timidity wouldn't be an issue. All kinds of things, if you were that kind of person. And it's like, we, you know, we've used the phrase alive, awake, and free. In other words, what would your life be like if you were alive, awake, and free? What would your marriage be like, your relationships, your generosity, your integrity, your forgiveness, all those things? All right. Now, let's stop and ask the question, why aren't we like that? I mean, I've been to church probably 52 times 50 years. You know, what's that, two and a half thousand times? Shouldn't I have gotten it by now? Yeah, right? Some of you have read through the Bible multiple times. Shouldn't we have gotten it by now? What is the obstacle that's keeping us back, people? What's the problem? Right? Is, it, is the problem my obedience? Is that why I'm not full of the life and power that comes from God? Is the problem my morality? Am I not good enough yet? Are you not good enough yet? Is that why you're not full of the life and power that comes from God? What's the problem? What keeps us back? What's the missing key? Right? What's missing? Now, there's a passage in the, in the book of Ephesians where Paul says, he ends, it with, he ends the passage by saying, then you will be full of the life and power that comes from God. All right? So it's kind of these if then, I'm not going to ask you to say out loud, but what's the first part of that passage? Because he's saying that's, this is the key. Then you'll be full of life and power that comes from God. Do you think Paul says, if you just learn to obey and love God? Do you think Paul says, if you read the Bible more often, if you pray more often, if you fast more often, if you give to the poor more often? What's the key so then you can be filled completely with the life and power that comes from God. You know what Paul says? The key to being full of the life and power that comes from God is the experience of the love of Jesus. It's love. It's like, okay, that's okay. obvious answer, love. We're in church. If it's not Jesus, it must be love, right? That's the right answer. Love, the experience, experiencing the love of Jesus. So, I suppose in that sense, the answer is most of us are not full. None of us are full completely with the life and power that comes from God. But we're not, and the solution is we need more experiencing of the love that comes from Jesus. And let me, we'll, we'll break that down here in a second. What we're going to do is this. We're going to talk about uh, a story from the Gospel of Luke, a parable that Jesus tells. It's a parable many of you are familiar with. It's a parable of the prodigal son. And I, and I put on here that Jesus confronts the Pharisees again because Jesus told, and a lot of people don't understand the context of this, Jesus told this parable 
in direct opposition to the Pharisees' perceptions of God and his love. Because the Pharisees had a certain perception of what God was like, and Jesus was trying to tell the people and tell us, no, that's not what God is like. Let me show you what God is like. And as Jesus confronts the Pharisees, I want you to also realize it's a painful realization, but every single one of us has a Pharisee inside of us. So sometimes it's confronting that Pharisee inside of us about how we understand God. Because the fact of the matter is most of us don't understand God nearly to the degree that he is. So in Acts chapter 15, here's how it starts off. Go to the next slide here. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. All right, notorious sinners, we know from other parts in the Gospels that included prostitutes. Um, tax collectors in those days were known to be corrupt because they worked for the Roman government, so it's not like IRS agents. It's kind of like really sneaky, shyster kind of people who were known to be dishonest. So tax collectors and prostitutes, that's probably enough right there to know it's like, Jesus was not hanging out with a crowd of really clean, nice people, all right? They came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that Jesus was associating with such sinful people. One passage in one of the Gospels, the Pharisees even use a word in the Greek that's translated in English as scum. Jesus, why are you hanging out with such scum? even eating with them. So the the clear perception is God doesn't love those people. You know how God thinks about people that are scum? God is detested by them. He's disgusted with them. That's what the Pharisees believed. People that are scum, people that are tax collectors, people that are prostitutes, or people like us that may have secret issues or we may be selfish. We have fights with our spouse. We are not always as generous with our money as we want to be. Anytime we're not what we're supposed to be, the Pharisees believe the proper response to that is condemnation, disgust, and contempt. And that's how people would get in line. You get in line because if somebody shows you enough contempt, you'll stop doing it. What one author calls condemnation engineering. If you condemn the, right, the wrong behaviors, it'll get people to behave. Right? That's how they believe God works. That if we just punish the right kind of ways and stay away from the wrong kind of people, and it's those people and their sins that are keeping from God's kingdom from coming into sway anyway, so we, are, we need to hold them in a righteous religious disgust. So this is, their, this is what they're talking about. And Jesus tells... Go to the next slide. Jesus told them three stories in response to this. He tells them the story of the lost, um, uh, the lost coin. He tells them the story of the lost um, sheep. And then he tells them the story of the lost son, the parable of the, of the prodigal son. Now, so Jesus is telling this. Imagine if we would for a second. The Pharisees are over there, and they're all regalia and all the religiosity and fully... Um, fully entrenched in the religious fog. All right, they're religious people. Jesus begins to tell this story, and it's, he's telling a story to the people, and he knows he's invest, engage, engaging in an intense conflict with these people right over there. So this is not just a hallmark moment. This is not just a, let me tell you a story. He's like, let me tell you a story, subplot, 
and it's going to make them really upset. Because they think God is like A, I'm here to tell you that's not what God is like. And these people, you, these people have been told your whole life that the way the Pharisees understand God is the correct way. That God holds our sin in contempt and disgust and in incredible displeasure. And he thinks until we clean our acts up, he doesn't even want anything to do with us. All right. So here's the story that Jesus tells. So just listen. Jesus told him a story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. In any Middle Eastern culture, that's essentially saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. I want my money now. I'm not willing to wait for you to die. I want my inheritance right now. Incredible rebellion incredible disrespect, dishonoring in ancient Mideast cultures worthy of stoning. All right? So that's what he does. That's what the son says. So the father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. And wild living then is what wild living now is. It's wild living. It's outside of the boundaries of what God... Later in the passage, we see it was prostitutes, parties, all kinds of stuff. Just whatever his, he desired, he did. About this time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his field to feed, to feed the pigs. All right, now, right now, if you're one of the Pharisees over here... Pigs, pork, that was a detestable animal to Jewish people. So now Jesus even added, make it, wow, this guy really is in a bad place. He's not only involved in wild living, sexual, all kinds of stuff, drinking, whatever. Now he's with pigs. So you couldn't get much lower than this young man was on the spiritual religious totem pole. He was as low as you can get. Now let me stop for a second because my, my guess is some of you have felt like there are times in your life where the things you have been doing or things you know you've done in the past that you feel guilty of, you may have felt somewhat of affinity with this young man. Like, I really feel like God must think I'm scum right now. I mean, I felt that way. I think I've told you my stories before. When I was in seminary trained to be a pastor, I struggled with pornography. I felt like I was in the pigsty with pigs because why in the world would God love me? Here I'm supposed to be a pastor and I'm dealing with porn. What's up with that? So I'm guessing there may be at least one or two or one or two hundred of you that understand what I mean with this guy was in a bad place. Not just economically, but in the de deepest part of his heart, he was anything but alive, awake, and free. So the Pharisees are just, they're trying to figure out where's Jesus going with this story? Because this guy's the very kind of scum we hate. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. Here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. Imagine for a second what he might have expected his father to do. Here he basically stuck his middle finger in his dad's face said, I wish you were dead, give me my money now. And then he blew it. We don't know how long this has been. What might have been his fears, anxieties, and emotional state as he was thinking about heading home? I don't know what to expect from my dad. 
I don't know if he'll even have me. His best expectation was, I'll live with the servants. That's the best expectation he had of his dad. Well, at least he might take me and let me live with the, you know, the servant people and the slave people. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. I'm a Pharisee right now. Here's how the Pharisees think that story should end. The boy's walking home. The father sees him a long way off. The father folds his arms, turns a little bit aside, and waits for the son to walk down the path and says, so what are you doing here? You think you have a place to live? After all you did to me? After all you hurt me? After the ways you've offended me and you took my money and you embarrassed me in front of my friends? That's what the Pharisees think God is like. He's going to be tapping his big, you know, thousand-ton foot, whatever God has. Kind of like, what do you have to say for yourself? So they're, they're, they're not sure where Jesus is going with the end of this story. But that's what they think God is like. And maybe we do too sometimes. We sin. We, we do something we know we didn't want to do. We feel incredible shame. And we think what we deserve from God is the appropriate amount of punishment to fit our shame because, after all, we deserve what we just got from God. And we're waiting for God's big stick to come across us and just give us at least some kind of a lash to make up for what we know we did wrong. And let alone, you know, we would never even think about looking him in the eye because I feel so, I you know, hurt him. So that's the Pharisees. What did Jesus say happened? Go to the next slide. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. The Pharisees are in an uproar. <laughs> That's not God. God would never do that to that kind of scum. Look what this guy's done. I mean, the father was willing to be incredibly undignified. By law, he could have his son punished, even stoned. But this old man probably pulls up his robes and he starts running down the pathway to the very person that hurt him the deepest in his entire life. He embraces him and he kisses him. And Jesus finishes the story and the story goes on. The father throws a party for the son. And Jesus is essentially saying to the Pharisees, that's what my father's like. And the Pharisees are appalled. Right? Because, yeah, he might welcome the son back, but embracing him and kissing him, it's a little bit much, isn't it, God? I mean, this is a person that wounded you and hurt you. I mean, think about how you feel when you've been engaged in something or you think about a pattern of sin in your life and you think about bringing that to God and you think that he's going to, okay, God, I messed up. I'm coming back to you, embracing and kissing. Is that the kind of intimacy God has toward us? Now, I'm saying this to all of us, but men, doesn't that feel like a little bit odd? Okay, God wants that kind of intimacy with us. He wants that kind of strong, powerful intimacy with us, even when we come to him with our brokenness. Next slide. This is a famous painting, uh, Rembrandt, about 300 years, uh, sometime in the 1700s. I don't know the exact date. I'm not an art historian, but one of my favorite paintings um, it's called The Return of the Prodigal, and you'll notice that 
the father standing over the son, the son's shoeless, and the father has his hands on him. One of the things that I was reading a book about this that somebody wrote, and they were kind of doing a meditation on this painting. Go to the next slide. They really focused on the hands of the father touching the son. Because, again, the, when you feel unworthy because of your sin or because of your brokenness, you're not sure you even deserve being touched by anybody, let alone the very person you wounded. I mean, think about those of you who are married. If you do something you know was hurtful to your spouse, the last thing you often expect from them is some kind of embrace. It almost feels disjointed. So here, the son is just solidly and strongly under the father's touch. Let me stop here for a second, because I think what a lot of people often respond, I'm not saying any of you, but I think sometimes we get this in the religious world is, okay, I don't need an experience like that. I don't need to be touched. I mean, I know God loves me. This is a little bit too touchy-feely, experiential. I mean, I know God loves me. I can tell you what the Greek word for love is and what it means. What's amazing in the Gospel of Luke is how many times Jesus touched people. He touched people he wasn't supposed to touch. Lepers, dead people, women, children. He's like on a touch fest, right? And people often, people brought their friends and their children to Jesus because they wanted him to touch them. And then some people even reached out to touch Jesus, the woman who had the issue with blood, and other, the others would reach out to touch. They followed his feet. Touch, 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 touch. So is the gospel touchy-feely? No. But if Jesus is a person, if God is a person, aren't we meant to experience them as people? Aren't we meant to experience them more than an intellectual way? I mean, if, if my wife and I got married, well, we did get married, not if, we did. <laughs> if we get married, surprise. Um, let's say if we got married, had an enjoyable honeymoon, she wrote me a note affirming her love for me, I wrote her a note affirming my love for her, and then I said, hey, it's been nice seeing you. Now that you know I love me, let's go live life. And let's say I never touched her again, never talked to her again, but I have this note that says she loves me. She has this note that says I love her. Oh, I know she loves me. I know she loves me. But we're living in the same house, but we never talk or touch. Wouldn't you wonder if we really loved each other? So why do we think that God doesn't have to touch us why do we think God doesn't talk to us? Why do we think we don't have to experience God, his love for us? We think we're above that or beyond it or whatever. That's relationship. Go to the next. One of the things that's interesting in the passages of, of, in Luke and with the prodigal son is it seems like Jesus often touches people. The Father embraces people only after they're honest with their own brokenness. It's just interesting. It's not a rule. It's not a principle. I'm just finding it interesting that people that were lepers, blind people, people that were sick, dying, dead, whatever, or somebody who was a horrible, wretched sinner, the greatest experience of their love with Jesus and from Jesus came 
when they put their brokenness on the table and didn't know how Jesus was going to respond, and Jesus responded by touching them. I mean, some my greatest experiences of the love of Jesus, and I put that in quotes. I'm not trying to mock it because I think sometimes we was one when I. <laughs> Twice, twice in seminary. Once when I was cheating on a homework assignment, and second when I struggled with pornography. And in response to ways that somebody, Jesus responded to me, I had the most profound experiences of the love of God in my life because those issues of brokenness were out on the table. So you might say, well, I've never really had an experience of the love of Jesus. I'm not sure I really need one. Am I supposed to get like the warm fuzzies or the chills at my back? No, not necessarily, Maybe. But it seems like the more you bring yourself honestly to Jesus, the more you come out of the pigsty and you have no excuses other than say, I, this is who I am. I mean, it's easy to love you when you're behaving well, isn't it? Those of you who have kids, it's easy to love your kids when they're behaving well. The challenge is when they're not behaving well, do you still love them? It's easy to understand that God loves us when we behave well. The challenge is, do we really believe God still loves us when we don't? Next slide here. This is Paul's prayer to the Ephesians that I mentioned earlier, but I'm going to read the whole context here, I, and then I'm going to have a challenge for you to pray this week, a one-line prayer in a second. This is what Paul was telling the Christians in Ephesus. That's what Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is telling the Christians in Bloomington. And I pray that your roots will go down, grow down into God's love, and keep you strong, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ. Right? Paul wanted them to experience the love of Christ, not just academic theological knowledge of, though it's too great to understand fully. Then, when you experience the love of Christ, then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So here's the prayer I'm going to ask you to pray this week. For you. You are the prodigal son or daughter this week. I mean, we are all the time anyway. But I, want you, I don't want you to think about someone else this week. I want you to think about you. I'm going to ask Jesus, Jesus, I want to experience your love. I don't want you to conjure anything up. I'm, not, I'm just asking you to ask Jesus that. Jesus, I want to experience your love. I want to, I want to understand, feel, know. I want to know beyond knowledge and cognitive Definitions. I want to experience your love for me. Not as a demand, but as, a, as an expectation, Jesus, that you say you want to do that for us. You want to show us. You want us to know, experience your love for us. So say that with me just out loud. Just to practice, all right? Jesus, I want to experience your love. Do it again. Jesus, I want to experience your love. Now close your eyes and do it again. Jesus, I want to experience your love. Jesus, um, it's amazing through the Gospels how you, you love people. You love people that we don't think you should love, and you love people that nobody thought you should love. You love us when we don't think you should love us. So Jesus, we do want to experience your love. We place no parameters on you about what that looks like or feels like. We do know that it will most likely happen outside of the box we've already drawn for you. We do know that if we are going to experience something new of your love for us, it's probably outside the little cubicle we've drawn around you. So would you, if you're, going to, if you're going to speak to us through an experience of your love for us, help us understand it. Help us know. Help us know your love for us. 
God, I'm going to pray that we would experience your love and um, not put any more boundaries, parameters, or restrictions on you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to show it like a two-minute video clip. Um, a guy named Brendan Manning was a really uh, influential author in my life. He just died a couple days ago. Two days ago, is that right? Two days ago. And let me, we're going to show the video here in a second. It's just a two-minute clip of one of his sermons. But here's how he starts one of his books out. And I love, 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 love how he starts out. Brendan Manning is his name. He says, hi, I'm Brennan. I'm an alcoholic. How I got there, why I left there, and why I went back is the story of my life. But it's not the whole story. Hi, I'm Brennan. I'm Catholic. How I got there, why I left there, why I went back is also the story of my life. But it's not the whole story. Hi, I'm Brennan. I was a priest. I'm no longer a priest. I was a married man, but I'm no longer a married man. How I got to those places and why I left those places is the story of my life too. But it's not the whole story. And then his last line is, I'm Brennan. I'm a sinner. Saved by grace. That's the larger and more important story. Only God in his furious love knows the whole of it. So this is just his little two minute on the love of God. This is the compassion of Almighty God. And Jesus says to your heart and mind tonight, don't ever be so foolish as to measure my compassion for you in terms of your compassion for one another. Don't ever be so silly as to compare your thin, pallid, wavering, moody, dependent on school circumstances, human compassion with mine, triumph God, as well as man. When you read in the Gospels that Jesus was moved with compassion, it is saying his gut was wrenched, his heart torn open, the most vulnerable part of his being laid there. The ground of all being shook, the source of all life trembled, the heart of all love burst open, and the unfathomable depths of the relentless tenderness was laid bare. Your Christian life and mine don't make any sense unless in the depth of our beings we believe that Jesus not only knows what hurts us, but knowing seeks us out, whatever our poverty, whatever our pain. His plea to his people is come now wounded, frightened, angry, lonely, empty, and I'll meet you where you live. And I love you as you are, now as you should be, but you're never going to be as you should be. Do you really believe this? And with all the wrong turns you made in your past, the mistakes, the moments of selfishness, dishonesty, and degraded love, do you really believe that Jesus Christ loves you? Not the person next to you, not the church, not the world, but that he loves you beyond worthiness and unworthiness beyond fidelity and infidelity. That he loves you in the morning sun, the evening rain, without caution, regret, boundary, limit, no matter what's gone down, he can't stop loving you. This is the Jesus of the Gospels. Jesus, thank you that you gave the deepest expression of your love to us was through your willingness, your humility to obey the Father and going to the cross. And your love for us knows no bounds. There's nothing any single person has done in this room that makes them exist outside of the reach of your love. Nothing. There's no one in this room who's outside that reach. No matter what we've done, 
And it's all because of what your cross, what you on the cross and your death and then your resurrection accomplished. You open up this whole new way for us to experience acceptance and love from you in ways we couldn't even fathom. So Jesus, thank you that you uh, gave us your life and gave us new life. And we, um, we're grateful. And we ask this all in your name. Amen. Here's how we do it at Exodus. We'll sing a few more songs. And as we're singing, as soon as we start singing, uh, you're invited to come up. There'll be people at the aisles, and they'll be offering you bread. Tear off a piece. They'll offer you the cup. We just dip it in the cup. That's how we do it. Most people eat it right away. Some people take it back to their seat. It's up to you. I'm going to ask those of you who are serving today, and some of you do anyway, when you serve them, if you're able to, with, with your hand, put, touch the person you're serving, either on the arm or whatever. Um, and I want you to rec- everybody to receive that as the touch of God on your life. It's the touch of Jesus on your life. And as part of your prayer for Jesus, I want to experience your love. All right? So uh, let's take, let's worship. And uh, again, if there's anybody even now that still thinks they want to get baptized, go find Dan and we can work it out. All right?